Well, good morning once again. If you would take out your Bibles and return to that passage that Pastor David read for us earlier in the service, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15 will be our text for this morning. At the beginning of the service, I mentioned the fact that Lynn and I were able to attend a missions conference down in uh, Florida, which we had a, a great experience at, very inspiring, enriching, encouraging missions conference. Uh, we extended our stay down there and were able to visit some family that live in that area, but we also were able to visit some of our church family there in close proximity of where the missions conference was. Uh, we experienced the hospitality of the Schultzes and the Kinzers and the Schwanekees and the Stockmeyers. And so from them, I send greetings to all of you, and uh, we appreciated their hospitality when we were there. Let me have a quick word of prayer, and we'll dive into our message for this morning. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, our time together this morning and hearing the Scripture read and singing praise to your name. And uh, now we come with a particular text before us as we conclude kind of a portion of this letter this morning. Pray that you would guide and direct our thoughts uh, give us an ability to uh, keep our concentration upon yourself and upon your word and upon uh, its message for us today, and uh, continue your work, your good work in our lives of conforming us into your image, into the image of your Son, uh, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, every year, I try to read a, a couple of biographies of uh, significant historical figures. Often, uh, they're Christian personalities, but not always. Uh, this last year, I read two biographies. Uh, the first biography was of Eric Little, or Eric Liddell. Uh, it's actually the second biography I've read on that particular individual. Eric is the flying Scotsman. Eric is the gentleman who won gold and set a world record in the 1924 Olympics, running the 400-meter race, uh, following his fame as the world's fastest runner. He didn't uh, become a track coach or a marketing figurehead for some famous shoe brand. No, he went to China and served as a missionary in China until the end of his life. And he served in China until his death at a Japanese internment camp in 1945, just before World War II ended. His story is a fascinating story, and I've read a couple of biographies on him. Uh, most of you may not recognize the name or uh, a little bit of that history, but uh, if I mention Chariots of Fire... You might go, oh yeah, that's the guy. Uh, fascinating gentleman. Uh, another biography I read last year was on Eugene Peterson. Eugene, uh, Eugene Peterson uh, passed away this last year, and he had a, an authorized a biographer who published the biography just after his passing. Uh, Eugene Peterson is probably best known for writing uh, the message Bible paraphrase, and uh, probably most known for that. He's lesser known for planting a church in Baltimore, Maryland, and then pastoring that church for his entire career, uh, pastored that his entire life. Anyways, a few years ago, I read a couple of biographies back-to-back, and I read those biographies back-to-back purposely. Uh, I, I read the biography of John Wesley, and then immediately followed that with a biography of George Whitfield. And uh, those two were contemporaries. They both lived and died in the 1700s. They were peers. They were friends. They were renowned ministers of the gospel, uh, great churchmen. Uh, John Wesley, uh, arguably, arguably best known for his founding of the Methodist Church and the Wesleyan movement, and George Whitfield, best known for his evangelistic work in the Great Awakening. But I read those biographies back to back because... Uh, they were friends, and they were contemporaries, and they did ministry side by side and, and shared pulpits. And the fascinating thing about that is John Wesley is Arminian, and George Whitfield is a Calvinist. Now, if that doesn't resonate with you, that's like an Orthodox Presbyterian doing ministry alongside of a holiness Wesleyan guy. And that just doesn't happen. 
Matter of fact, together for the gospel couldn't make that happen. Um, but it's very interesting. The Wesleyan and the Presbyterians, if you will, they are on opposite sides of the aisle. But reading their biographies intentionally, I found their charity toward one another quite refreshing, uh, particularly in our day and age where there seems to be the desperate need to beat down everyone who doesn't agree with us on every point. Uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, they had their significant differences. And sometimes those differences boiled over into public disagreement, but they remained friends and supportive of one another all of their life. Matter of fact, George uh, Whitfield encouraged Charles Wesley, who was the brother of John Wesley, to remain with John Wesley, even though George, uh, Charles Wesley wanted to leave and move into a Calvinistic lane. He said, no, you need to stay with your brother John because you guys are doing such great work. And John Wesley was the preacher at George Whitfield's funeral. A tremendous friendship, and I learned a great deal from their biographies. Uh, John Wesley, uh, one of those guys, is a fascinating Christian figure of the past. And uh, today, there might be much that we might disagree with him, and certainly the trajectory of the ministries that he founded have moved off the rails, if you will, from where they began. But regardless of that, John Wesley, in his lifetime, produced numerous Christian hymns and songs that are still sung today, and many modern proverbs. One of his most famous maxims comes from a sermon that he preached late in his life in 1789. The three points of his sermon, which became widely known as a proverbial saying, are this, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And he's talking about money, he's talking about personal economics, and his points are easily defended from the scripture. Earn all you can. Because Christians work as unto the Lord, they ought to be as industrious as they can be in their particular field. Christian employees, Christian employers ought to be the very best because of whom they serve. Their work becomes a matter of worship because they're serving the Lord Christ and they're benefiting the world through the good work that they do. Uh, where they work is where they most love their neighbor by the good work they do. And their personal industry, their personal production is connected to their faith and their worldview and their union with Jesus. So Christians ought to be making as much as they can for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for the betterment of the world. Biblically speaking, to not be as industrious as one should be when they can be, well, that person would be thought of to either be lazy or lacking in love. So make as much as you can. Uh, second, save all you can. All over the pages of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is the instruction to be wise stewards with the financial resources that God has entrusted to us. Uh, we are instructed to make wise investments, to put our money to work. We ought to save for the future. We ought to save up for future needs, save up for future generations. A, a wise parent is one who saves up for his children and his grandchildren. So the person who doesn't work, biblically speaking, would be considered lazy and unloving. The person who doesn't save would be considered short-sighted and foolish. So here's the message. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And that's a great tension. Save as much as you can and give away as much as you can. Tremendous tension. And like so many other things in our Christian experience, we grow in wisdom and we grow in faith as we learn to put what we think of as parallel truths into practice. Well, our immediate study, we have been studying through the letter of 2 Corinthians, and in particularly 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, have been on this matter of rich generosity. Paul's writing the Corinthian church, and he's encouraging them to be generous to a particular giving opportunity. 
uh, the portion of the letter that is assigned to me this morning, verses 6 through 15 of chapter 9, uh, begins with these words. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 6. It begins with these words. The point is this. Now, that makes me feel like I'm beginning a message where Paul's message ends. Paul has been saying things, he's been making an argument, and he's reached a conclusion, and he's about to share the point. Well, without going into detail, what has Paul been saying all along that has brought him to this particular point? Let me give you four things in brief summary. One, the desire, the opportunity, and the ability to give is grace from God. Paul has made that plain in both chapters 8 and 9. The desire to give, the opportunity to give, and the ability to give is grace from God. It doesn't arise from within us or originate from ourselves. Matter of fact, our old nature, our old man, our pre-Christ self, has selfish and not generous impulses. And in our fallen state, that's just the way we were. Matter of fact, even when we were generous in our fallen condition, our generosity, we were always calculating. What's in it for me? Do I get anything out of this? Will anyone notice my generosity? Will I get any recognition? Will this generosity make me feel good? Will I get any credit with those whom I want to impress or manipulate? But having experienced the generosity of our Heavenly Father, given to us in the person of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God and through faith in Jesus Christ, we have come into a generous family and we are being remade into generous people. That's good news, really good news. The people who are in union with Jesus now have God-given generous impulses that are not so self-regarding. Today, the desire to give, to let go of personal resources to meet the needs of others without self-regard or self-promotion, putting other needs before our personal desires, following the example of Jesus, who in chapter 8 was told he was rich, yet in his incarnation became poor so that we might be enriched eternally and infinitely. So the desire to give and the opportunity to give is grace to us, is grace to us. God has been infinitely generous to us. And now this God whom we love and serve and whom we have been joined to through Jesus Christ is making us more like himself. And in these chapters, we read about the testimony of Jesus, the character of Jesus, and the life of Jesus Christ being produced in us as he's remaking us in his image. And so that's one of the points that Paul has been making. The desire, the opportunity, and the ability to give comes from God. After all, God is the one who gives us the ability to produce wealth. It comes from him. He gives us the ability to earn, to save, to work, and to give. Well, that was the second thing that Paul's been saying. When it comes to giving, it's not the thought that counts. Good impulses are to be matched with happy follow-through. Uh, according to the biblical text that we've been studying, the Corinthians were the first to have this desire to give. They heard of the need of the churches in Jerusalem and their impoverished condition. Paul had come to them and had communicated to the Corinthians this need, and the Corinthians had a desire to give. But as we read the letter, we discover they needed the additional instruction and motivation to do, to finish what they started. And, and Paul is actually writing them to encourage them to do what they actually desire to do. Do you ever sometimes run out of motivation? Have a real impulse to do something and then just fall away from that? Well, that might have been the Corinthians illustration or experience. And, and he's saying, hey, it's not the thought that counts. It's the actual follow through. And so Paul is writing them to actually follow through and do so happily. Third message, the administration of our generosity should 
demonstrate integrity and personal and promote unity. So it's not just the giving that matters. The giving does matter. The giving is important. It's grace to us. But how we handle, how we administrate the resources that have been given to us is equally important. Being honest before God and honest before man really matters. And then fourth, the fourth thing that Paul has been saying is living into our new identity motivates others to do the same. As I said, the Corinthians were the first to have the desire to give. And it was their desire that actually motivated the Macedonians to actually give. And then the Macedonians actually giving motivated the Corinthians to follow through with their initial desires. And Paul used each one and the testimony of each one and the lives of others to move them to do what they ought to do. And so as the Corinthians desired to give, the Macedonians did give, and the Macedonian given moved the Corinthians to give, and as they gave, the church in Jerusalem had their needs met, and they thanked God, and they acknowledged the unity between them as members of the same family, and they responded back in ministry of thanksgiving and prayer. Now, this is remarkable. I won't belabor this point. I'm going to move from it quickly, but it's remarkable how our living impacts the living of other people. Maybe that's why I read Christian biographies, because people living 200 years ago can still impact my life today. But here in this situation, as we read this letter, we see Paul is using the Macedonians and the Corinthians to motivate one another to do what they had a desire to do and to do what they ought to do. Well, back to verse 6. With all of this background, Paul is making or reaching a point. What is the point that Paul is making? Look at verse 6 with me. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion or manipulation, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver because he himself is a cheerful giver. In making his point, Paul uses an agricultural proverb or an agricultural truism. He points out that the size of the harvest is proportional to the amount of seed that is sown. Now, only a few of us are farmers here. Some of the farmers we visited down in Florida, the Stockmeyers, so they're not here this morning. But there's only a few of us that are farmers here. We're not that familiar with agriculture, but we, 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 we are familiar with our lawns, with our yards. As a matter of fact, most of us, our farming, our harvesting comes from our favorite produce aisle and our favorite grocery store, right? That's where we do our harvesting. Love the produce aisle at Aldi. Those groceries are so cheap and so clean and so ready to be eaten. But we're not familiar with farming, but we, we do have yards. So imagine with me, put on your imagination caps for a moment, and imagine with me that you had a home built this past year in a subdivision. And, and the home is constructed inside and out, it is completed, and you move into your home, but the yard is to be put in this spring. Uh, the weather finally starts breaking and getting some better, and the landscape crew comes out, and they begin to prepare your yard. They bring in the bulldozers, and they level those big mounds of dirt and make it uh, level. Uh, they come back with smaller equipment, and they till the soil, and then they come back with a work crew of guys, and they have rakes, and they rake the lawn completely smooth, and it's ready for the seed. And you wait a little while, and then the weather turns again, and you expect the landscape crew to show up with bags of seed and spread it all over your yard. And, and come with pickup loads of seed. And you expect them to grab that seed and either spread it by hand or with a hand spreader or maybe a machine or maybe park even a tanker truck out of the road with that blue-green gunk they spray all over. 
paint your whole yard, make it look blue-green, and it'll grow into seed, grow into a, a lawn. Well, imagine that day comes, and it's time to seed your lawn, and uh, you expect a whole crew to show up, and one guy shows up in an old pickup truck, and he gets a little five-gallon bucket, and he drops it on the sidewalk, and he reaches down in that little five-gallon bucket, and he pulls up a little handful of seed, and he walks out in your front yard, and he takes a little pinch, and he goes, oh, there's some for the front yard, and there's some for the side yard, and there's a little for the backyard, and he gets ready to go. What would you do? Come on. I expect you'd have a conversation with the landscape guy, right? And you'd probably pull out your contract because you would have different expectations. Am I not accurate? Yeah. But on the other hand, let's say they show up and that tanker truck does pull up to your front yard, which has been all tilled and raked and prepared and the tanker truck pulls out by the road and a guy pulls up in your yard with a hose and he sprays your entire lawn blue, green, quarter inch thick of that stuff and he guarantees that it'll grow even on the sidewalk where they oversprayed. What would your expectation be then? Oh, you'd be happy. In a couple months, you would expect a full and flourishing lawn. You see, you don't have to be a farmer to understand what Paul is getting at and to know the point that he is making. What's the point? If our giving was compared to seeding our lawn, then how would our giving yard look? If our giving was compared to planting sugar beets, we're familiar with planting sugar beets here in this area. We have fields and fields and fields of sugar beets every year. If our giving was compared to planting sugar beets, how does that field look come June, July, August, September? What would be the condition of our fields? Because Paul uses this illustration as he's making his concluding point. What you sow is what you reap, and our harvest is proportional to what we plant. And so the point Paul is making is he compares giving to gardening and generosity to farming. That's the point he's making. Now, along with the point, he gives a promise. So he doesn't just end with a point. He does make a promise. What is the promise? Look at verse 8 where we left off. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. And giving is grace. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's a lot of alls there. All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He, he repeats the promise here, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You read that and you go, wow, that's quite a promise following this point. Do you believe the promise? Are you learning to live into that promise? God is able to meet our needs and to resource us for every good work. Now, please notice, God doesn't say that if you give generously, he will make you financially wealthy. He doesn't say that. That's the message of the gospel salesmen. That's the message of the gospel peddlers who distort the truth for personal profit. There are the ones who use the gospel to say, hey, you give, 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 give generously, give it to me, and, and you'll get tenfold back. I had someone in the early service said, you know, that happened to me, and I was watching this guy, and he's saying, hey, if you send in $1,000, you'll get $10,000. 
So he called the ministry and said, hey, I tell you what, why don't you send me $1,000? You get $10,000. And they said, it doesn't work that way. Right? God doesn't say that if you give generously, he will make you financially wealthy. But God does promise that he will resource you for every good work and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And that kind of riches coming from that kind of harvest doesn't compare with bank accounts that won't endure. Solomon says back in the book of Proverbs, money can quickly grow wings and fly away. Jesus said, store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust and theft doesn't happen. And the apostle Peter tells us that the tested genuineness of our faith is greater than gold. So in other words, believing this promise that God will supply our needs and enrich us in every way for every good work and increase the harvest of our righteousness, believing this promise and living into that truth is better than financial prosperity. Far better. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Uh, the Philippian church was a member of that impoverished Macedonian community that gave generously to the Jerusalem church. They were, they were called in this letter uh, extremely poor. And, and they gave generously. And, and they didn't get golden tennis shoes and big houses and big bank accounts because they gave. But God did enrich them. Remarkably, with a harvest of righteousness. Well, how do, how do we even know that? Well, Paul didn't just write the Corinthians. He also wrote the Philippians. And look what he tells them in chapter four of his letter. It was kind of you, he's, he's writing to the Philippians, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, which was also in Macedonia, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift. Wasn't even asking for it. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, the Philippians have a great credit score in heaven. God knows it. I am well supplied. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And here's the promise. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to God and Father, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so this matter of giving, it, it wasn't a one-off thing for the Philippians. They didn't hear like, oh, the church in Jerusalem is decimated and you ought to give to it. And it wasn't just a one-off thing. It, it was something that they, it was not a one and done. It was a grace that was being worked into their life and worked out into their practice. And Paul knows it. And Paul gives them the same promise that he gives the Corinthians. God's able to supply your needs. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. Well, back to 2 Corinthians. Paul makes the point, he includes a promise, and then finally he tells them what their generosity would produce, the product. Look at verse 12, and we'll finish with this. For the ministry of this service, this Christian service of giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their, the Jerusalem churches, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're obeying Jesus in this and they're walking with Christ in it. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others 
while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And that inexpressible gift was communicated to us back in chapter 8 that Jesus, though he was rich, incarnated himself and became poor so that we might be infinitely enriched. So here's the message. Uh, We're at the end of this, chapter 8 and chapter 9, where Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to be generous. Uh, The point is, giving is like gardening. It operates on the same principle. You reap in proportion to what you sow. And matter of fact, you will reap a lot more than you do so. The harvest is always bigger. So giving is like gardening. The promise, God is able to supply all you need to do what he wants you to do. Oh boy, that's encouraging. God is able to supply all that you need to do what he wants you to do in every situation he has you in. The produce, uh, the happy produce of happy generosity, faithfully administered for the glory of God and good others, There's four things. First, real needs are met. Real needs are met. The church in Jerusalem, Paul himself, were benefited by the giving of these people. Real needs are met. Thanksgiving overflows to God. God is glorified through gospel submission. When God's people believe his promises and walk with Jesus in faith and in wisdom and in real submission, God is glorified. And God's people are resourced and happy. And then finally, believers are bonded together through giving and receiving. So here's the message. This is it. Paul's reached the end in our Bibles of two chapters of encouraging the Corinthian church to be generous. And he's given them a a giving opportunity. And and he, he makes his point and he gives the promise and he tells them what their giving would actually produce. So that's kind of the end of the biblical text. As a matter of fact, next week, we'll turn in our Bibles to chapter 10, and we're going to find that Paul turns a real corner in the text, and this matter of giving will uh, will be in the rear of your mirror. So with that in mind, uh, let me just wrap up with the time I have left for us here. we're, We're not the Corinthian church. Partnering with the Macedonian church to minister to the decimated church in Jerusalem That's not our experience, though we're learning from it. Uh, We are Emmanuel Bible Church in Saginaw, Michigan in 2024. We're learning from this letter, and we're leaning into God's Word, and we're believing God's promises, and we're desiring to live into the truth as followers of Jesus Christ today. You know, as your pastor, and I've had the the gracious privilege of pastoring here now for 26 years, I'm I'm with a team of pastors uh, who serve with a team of elders and a great number of leaders here in this church. I I want to, as your pastor, I want to commend you for your rich generosity that has been revealed time and time and time again. The historic generosity of this congregation is staggering. The number of times you have responded to meet real needs with rich generosity is way too many to recount even in just the short time that I've been here. Let me, let me remind you of a few things of recent memory. Two years ago this weekend, two years ago this very weekend, a war broke out as Russia invaded Ukraine. Thousands of refugees were fleeing Ukraine and heading into neighboring Poland. We have boots on the ground in Poland. 
We have a pastor there, Ben Lair, who's pastored two churches just west of the border. His church is being overrun with needs of these Ukrainian refugees. We hear of this need, and in a very short period of time, we send Ben a large financial gift to aid the churches there who are aiding the refugees there. That gift is still bearing fruit. It's remarkable. Camp Barakel. A few years ago, the, the Camp Barakel maintenance garage burnt to the ground in a terrible freak accident, probably caused by lightning. In that garage is hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, vehicles, a wood shop, tools of all sorts and kind. And this church, partnering with other churches, contributed money and tools and time to see it all restored. It's remarkable. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in less than a year. Our missionaries in Papua New Guinea that I mentioned this morning, Levi and Robin Lenz, communicated to us just a few years ago a need for a vehicle for their ministry there. It's way beyond their reach. It's way impossible for them to secure it. So we partnered with other ministry churches to purchase a car for them to the tune of $70,000. We did it again last year with our missionaries in Central Asia, Rachel and Aaron, not to that level, but we contributed with other churches. We're not their sending church. We contributed with their sending church to, to do that again last, last year. Less than two months ago, we, in this past December, we heard that Awana had been invited into the public schools of Central Africa. $650 would get a club off the ground. In three weeks' time, this church alone sent them a gift of nearly $18,000 in one month when everyone's buying Christmas gifts. Staggering. Paul and Pat Dye have served with New Tribes Aviation for their entire career, and they've reached the end of their ministry there, but in their retirement, they want to they remain there and continue to volunteer and serve New Tribes Aviation in their retirement years, but they're living in New Tribes housing. They've got to get out. How many teams of men did we send down there to see a house built right next door? You go stand on their porch and you look out at New Tribes Aviation and Paul and Pat continue to serve there to the present. It's remarkable. We could go on like this all afternoon and again, I've been here just over a couple of decades. Only a small contingent of this present congregation remembers 20 years ago. Most of you came here in the last 20 years or less. So only a small contingent of this present congregation remembers 20 years ago when we didn't have the will or the resources to replace 30-year-old carpet in our downtown location. <laughs> Couldn't do it. And then from our truly impoverished position, we trusted God and we gave generously to embark on a million-dollar adventure of moving out and beginning all over again. It was impossible, impossible. What a miraculous adventure. And then ever since that move, by the grace of God, we've not stopped expanding. And by God's grace, we won't until Christ returns. So as your pastor, I commend you as a congregation for excelling in the grace of giving. 
this church has routinely contributed more than it can, and I don't know how it does it. <laughs> I don't know how. I stand back in awe. I thank God for his grace to us. I thank God for your rich generosity. And I believe that God is able to make all grace abound to us. So having all sufficiency in all things at all times, we may abound in every good work. Don't you? Now, more recently, two years ago, our ministry leaders not the elders, not the servant administration team, but our ministry leaders, those who are involved in ministry, boots on the ground, they were communicating to the leadership team, the elders and the servant administration team that they were running out of facility space. Two years ago, they come forward with this. Uh, we might be small, but we are slow. Two years after their request, we come forward with facility expansion plans. And three weeks ago at our January member meeting, we vote to begin contributing financially toward the known and immediate need. Uh, we took a vote not to spend a dime, but we took a vote to begin giving and saving toward an immediate need that will be met sometime in the future. At that vote, two-thirds of the people present said, let's go, let's get started. We've been waiting for this. One-third said, ah, we're hesitant. We've got some questions, some things are unanswered. That's a big project. I appreciate the fact that we took the vote. And I appreciate the fact that people voted their conscience and voted the way they honestly felt and felt they could participate. I appreciate the fact that those who are unable to support the recommendation have begun having conversations with those who are in leadership to communicate their concerns. That's healthy. And that's helpful. And it's appreciated. We're listening. And we're learning. And we appreciate the feedback. And inevitably, it will influence our forward motion. But with all that said... The time has come. The time has come to once again begin contributing to needs that we have here at home. And, and you and I need to prayerfully, thoughtfully, in biblical wisdom, consider our participation in this giving opportunity. Uh, we don't tax our members. We're not going to twist your arm. We're not going to lay out roadmaps that you need to conform to. We don't extract money. We're not going to dig into your wallet. We don't play those games. But you and I now have the opportunity of deciding in our hearts what we will give. Uh, we realize that in this congregation, people contribute financially in a variety of ways. Uh, some will begin increasing what they give ongoing. Some people will begin laying money aside week by week and give larger gifts at various times throughout the year. We don't even dictate that. But here's the current plan. On Resurrection Sunday, which is March 31st, it's only five weeks away. On Resurrection Sunday, we're gonna kick off contributing toward the goal of seeing our ministry move forward. We probably won't mention it that morning. We might mention it a few times between now and then. But we want to give you and myself and all of us the opportunity to pray about our personal involvement and then decide in our hearts how we are going to respond. I know within this church, there are several praying communities within this congregation, people who get together and regularly pray together. Uh, you need to pray together about this and our participation in it. But on March 31st, uh, we will begin. We won't stop you if you want to give early. Some have already started to do that. Some have started to do that from the time we took the vote. 
said, hey, we need to do this, and they've already started contributing, and we're grateful for that. But with this passage in mind, and with this, I'm going to conclude, because we're going to move out of this. We're going to move out of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and we're going to move into a whole new lane. But with this passage and this instruction in mind, let's give as we have decided in our hearts to give. Let's give first to the Lord and then to the need. Let's give not to burden ourselves, but to meet real needs. Let's give according to our ability, according to our means. Let's give cheerfully. Let's give and let's be wise and honorable with its administration. Let's give and excel in this grace of giving. Let's give following the example of Jesus who gave himself to enrich us. Let's give and watch how God works in and through us for his glory and for our joy. I'll conclude with the second half of that promise. God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your rich generosity to us. You love cheerful givers because you are a cheerful giver. You've given us, out of great love for us, a gift of infinite worth, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, that though we were broken off and sinners and rebellious, you loved us, Christ came, and through Christ we have been reconciled to you, made members of your family, made members of a generous community. Father, I thank you for your grace to us in Christ. I thank you for your grace to this congregation that has been worked out in rich generosity time and time again. We thank you. We praise you that you meet our needs. We believe your promises. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we walk forward. I pray that you would guide us and lead us with your word, by your spirit, for your glory. In all this, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.